Desiring God Ministries did a uh, did an interview with a guy named Paul Tripp. Paul Tripp is a uh, he's on the pastoral staff at Tenth Presbyterian in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. He's an author. He's a speaker. Uh, I think technically he's a psychologist as well. And they did a uh, an interview with him, and a series of articles came out of the interview. And uh, they put these up on uh, their website, on the Desiring God Ministries website. And uh, uh, there should be a slide that will be coming up here in just a minute. And in that uh, article, one of them, they ask Paul Tripp, what is the greatest hindrance to cultivating community in the American church? And here's what he had to say. The first thing that comes to mind is frenetic Western culture busyness. I read a book on stress a few years back and the author made a side comment that I thought was so insightful. He said that the highest value of materialistic Western culture is not possessing, it is actually acquiring. If you're a go-getter, you never stop. And so the guy who is lavishly successful doesn't quit because there are greater levels of success. My house could be bigger, I could drive better cars, I could have more power, I could have more money. And so we've bought an unbiblical definition of the good life of success. Our kids have to be skilled at three sports and play four musical instruments. And our house has to be lavish by whatever standard. And all of that stuff is eating time, eating energy, eating money. And it doesn't promote community. I think often that even the programs of a local church are too sectored and too busy. As if we're trying to program godliness. And so the family is actually never together because they're all in demographic groupings. Where do we have time where we are pursuing relationships with one another, living with one another, praying with one another, talking with one another? And then he sums up the article by saying, or his interview piece, You can't fit God's dream, if I can use that language, for His church inside of the American dream and have it work. It's a radically different lifestyle. It just won't squeeze into the available spaces of the time and energy that's left over. Uh, You you know, churches go through lots of fads. What will happen is, One church will try something, and uh, they'll try it to pick one of of a variety of reasons. Try it to reach new people. Try it to draw new families. Try it to involve, uh, better involve visitors. And uh, a church will try something, and it'll work for one church, and then all kinds of churches who are looking for something that works take that thing and try to make it work for them until everyone's trying it and it's not working for many people and then it's on to the next biggest and greatest uh, new thing. And so a couple examples. Uh, One of them, uh, well over 100 years ago, is Sunday school. Sunday school was started as a means to, uh, to reach children who the church did not have contact with and even some adults. And it was literally a school where they were teaching people to read who were not able to go to school and they were teaching them to read using the Bible. 
And uh, because it was such a great educational tool, it really succeeded uh, at a few churches and then at a lot of churches. But then the school systems got better, and so Sunday school became more of a training program for Christians. And then it came to the point where you couldn't even get Christians to go to Sunday school. And so lots of churches have decided, we're done with Sunday school. That fad has come and gone. Back in the 70s, could have been before, but definitely started in the 70s and and was in full steam by the late 70s, early 80s, uh, some churches were using buses, school buses, to pick up kids and to pick up teenagers to bring them to church activities. And so they would go to areas of town where children and teenagers could not get to their church. They would pick them up because their parents weren't bringing them, and they would bring them to their church activities. And some churches started to have... Uh, 80, 90, 100, 200, 300, 1,000, 2,000 children and teenagers that were coming weekly to events because of their bus ministry. And so a bunch of churches went out and got buses. Even rural podunk churches went out and bought a used school bus because they thought bus ministry is the way to go. And now some of these churches that have built million-dollar children and youth facilities Uh, because of of all the numbers of students they've had as a result of their bus ministries, are selling off all of their buses. It's too expensive to upkeep the buses. There's too much liability. There's too much maintenance. And so that fad has come and gone. Another fad that's come and gone is uh, almost gone, starting to to trend away, is uh, more of a Willow Creek uh, seeker-sensitive. And the idea is Let's, let's just make everything real comfortable. Let's get everyone in the door. Once we get them in the door, we'll get them involved in a program or a group. And if we get them involved in enough programs and groups and we get them going enough and being consistent, then they'll become Christians and they'll grow spiritually. Uh, and one of the guys who started this was a guy named Bill Hybels. And his church, Willow Creek, released a book last year called Reveal, and it was the, uh, the result of a study that they'd done regarding their church and six others over the past three years. And Bill Hybels, the guy who engineered this uh, plan, said, we made a mistake. We were wrong. We thought if we got enough people involved in enough programs, it would produce spiritual growth. And it didn't. And what we should have been doing was teaching people how to read the Bible and letting God grow them up. Bill Hybels came to that realization. And so all these people who have been like, uh, Bill Hybels is next in line to Jesus are saying, okay, maybe, uh, maybe we need to look for the next biggest, baddest thing to grow our church and to get things going. Well, for a lot of people, community is this new buzzword. And you'll hear people say stuff like, well, You know, we just want to get people living in community together. And we want to get people walking in community with one another. And we want to get people sharing their lives. Or my personal favorite, we want to share our lives together and then live our shared lives on mission for the glory of God. So we're using the mission word and community, sharing lives and all this. And for some churches, this is the next fad. Let's just get everyone in community, man. We're all just in community together. And what's, what's interesting is the word community isn't even in some translations of the Bible. I don't believe it's found in the ESV at all. In the e- NASB, it's only found like 30 times. 
Uh, in the NIV, it's like 180 times. Uh, New King James and King James, zero times. So some translations of the Bible don't even have the word community. So is this just the next fad? Community? Let's get everyone sharing their lives together. Well, for some churches it will be. It will just be a fad. And they'll realize that people don't naturally lend themselves to sharing their lives together, just like children don't naturally lend themselves to sharing anything. And they'll realize that it doesn't work. But it's not just a fad. And it's not just a very biblical concept, but it's actually a concept. Community is actually a concept that's at the heart of the gospel message. And so tonight we're going to wrap up the series that we've been doing the past couple weeks on the gospel by talking about the gospel and community. So I'll pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we thank You so much for Your love and we thank You so much for Your Word. And we thank You that Your Spirit speaks to us through Your Word and directs our attention to You to know Your will, to know the mind of God, to know what You've done for us, to know how to respond to what You've done, and to learn how to live our lives in a way that honors You, that glorifies You, because You love us and we should love You back. And so, Father, I pray that You would speak through Your Word, speak by Your Spirit, speak to our hearts, teach us how to be the people that Jesus died for. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. The word community, as defined by Webster's Dictionary, means a unified body of individuals. When the Bible uses uh, the word community, the, the translations or the versions of the Bible that use that word... It's, it's a, a form of the word koinia. Koinonia. And that word uh, means not only a, an idea of community, but fellowship, association, communion, joint participation, can even mean intercourse. And when the Bible uses this word, there's lots of things that it teaches us. But one of the first things that we need to grab a hold of that the Bible teaches us about the concept of community especially trying to get to the heart of the gospel, is that God experiences perfect community within Himself. The first thing, there's four things we'll see. The first thing, God experiences perfect community within Himself among the three persons of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. In Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And verse 2 And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the water. So in the beginning, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are expressly mentioned in the work of creation. In John chapter 1, verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So the Word is Jesus. So in the beginning... God the Father, God the Holy Spirit, and God the Son are dwelling together in community, in intimacy, in harmony and unity. They're all working towards the same ends. They're all working uh, synergistically, working together in the work of creation. They're experiencing community, joint participation within the Godhead. We also see that the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have a perfect knowledge of one another. In John 1.18, 
Jesus says, no one has ever seen God, God the Father, the only God, who is at the Father's side, Jesus Christ, God the Son, He has made Him known. No one has seen God the Father, but God the Son, Jesus Christ, makes known to us what God is like. People say, I want to know what God is like. Well, look at Jesus. Jesus came to reveal the Father. Jesus knows God perfectly, but, but other people don't. And in 1 Corinthians 2, it says that the Spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God, the depths of God. The Spirit, the Holy Spirit, knows the mind of God. So nobody knows the Father perfectly except the Son. And the Holy Spirit knows the Father and the Son. They have an intimate knowledge of one another. So there's joint participation and there's intimacy between the members of the Godhead. And we also see that as they interact with one another, they are the perfect example of community. The perfect example of oneness. In John chapter 17, Jesus is praying to God the Father. And He's prayed over His disciples that He's chosen. And He says in verse 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in Me through their words. So if you're a believer in Christ, Jesus was praying for you here. And here's what He prays for you. That they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in Me, and I in you. That they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent Me. The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I and them and you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you love me. Jesus says that he wants God's children, he wants Christians, those who have put their faith in Christ, to experience a oneness a unity and community the way the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit do. And so if we want to get an idea of what it looks like for people to be in perfect unity and intimacy together, God the Father, God the, Holy, uh, the Son, and God the Holy Spirit are our examples. So God experiences perfect community within Himself. But the Bible also points us to the fact that God has always had a plan to have a community for Himself. And that plan is realized in Christ. You see, because God experiences perfect community within Himself among the, the persons of the Godhead, God does not need community from us because He's lacking something. God did not create people because He was lonely. God does not, create, uh, does not save Christians because He needs relationships. God needs nothing. God is sufficient for God. God has perfect relationship among Himself. And yet, God has always had a plan to have a community of people for Himself. And that plan is realized in Christ. In the Bible, in Genesis chapter 12, God calls a man named Abraham. And He says, uh, his name was Abram. And he says, Abram, leave your father and, uh, and, uh, or leave your people, leave your homeland, and come out, and I'm going to lead you to a place that you don't know. And I'm going to make a great nation out of you, Abram. 
And one night he tells Abram to look up at the stars in the sky and he says, if you could count those, that's how many your descendants will be. Your people, this people that I'm creating will be. And then in Genesis chapter 15, God tells Abraham to look all over this land, this countryside that he can see. He says, go ahead, take, take a good long look, breathe it in, check out the, scope out the scenery. Abram, everything you can see, I'm going to give this to you and to your descendants after you. This people, this community that I'm going to have for myself. And then in Genesis 17, God appears to Abram and says, tells Abram in a dream, calling him at this point, your name is no longer Abram, but Abraham. He says, you're going to have a great lineage, a great number of descendants, and I will be their God even as I've been your God, and they will be my people even as you've been my people. But they're going to be in slavery for a time. But I'll deliver them because I've made my covenant, my agreement with you, and I'm making a community of people for myself. And so everything works out just as, as God said. Abraham finally has a son, and his son has a son, and his son's son has 12 sons. And uh, God's community of people, Abraham's descendants, continue to grow, and they become the people of Israel, and they wind up in slavery in the land of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 3, God says to Moses, I have heard the cries of my people. This community that I have called my own, I have heard their cries, and I am sending you as my representative. I am going to deliver them out of slavery. And God does exactly what He tells Moses that He's going to do. And He delivers this people, this community that He has called His own. He delivers them out of slavery from one of the greatest nations on the face of the earth at that time, only by His power, by no doing of their own. And then He tells this people in Deuteronomy 7, starting at verse 6, He says, for you are a people holy, separated, set apart to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people or a community, a group, a unified body for His treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all peoples. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that He swore to your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. God says, you're my community, you're my people, because I chose you, not because you have anything going for yourself, but because I loved you. And I chose you out of all the peoples of the earth to be my community. Now, it's important for us to, to get a hold of something. When you read the Old Testament, you have to realize the specialness of God's community, of God's people. Because outside of God's people, His community, outside of ethnic Israel, very few people, if any people, knew God and are what we would call saved. We see 
a handful of people who come to know the one true God and come to be His people, but most oftentimes it's because they are leaving their own peoples and they are identifying themselves with the people of Israel, with the people of God, and they're adopting their culture and they're adopting God's laws and they're adopting their ways. And so they're becoming, they're coming out of their people group, they're coming out of their community, and they're coming into the people of God. And in Matthew chapter 15, it looks as though God is still building His people, and it looks as though it is still primarily the descendants of Abraham, the Jewish people. Jesus said to a woman who was not Jewish, Woman, I have come to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. It's not right to take the children's bread and give it to dogs. And she responds, But Jesus Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall off the table and Jesus shows her mercy. But if you read the Gospel accounts, with the exception of a few people, it looks like God's people, God's community that He's chosen for Himself are primarily Jewish people. And then in John 10.16, Jesus gives a hint that God's people is much greater than one ethnic group. He says, I have other sheep And they must come also. And then there will be one flock, even as there is one shepherd. Now, the Mormons teach that that's Native Americans. And Jesus said, I have people in North America. Um, But it seems like it kind of rips off people from Africa and China and everywhere else. So what the Bible is talking about is, I have people who are not just Jews. I have people who are Jews, and I have everybody else. And and God's community that He's designed for Himself in Christ does not look like an episode of Friends where everyone has everything in common already. But it's a very diverse group of people and their common bond is Christ. And so as Acts chapter 2 and 4 open up, we see people who have put their faith in the risen Lord and they've been indwelt by the power of the Holy Spirit and we're told things like they had all things in common community. They shared their lives. They sold their possessions and they gave to any who had need. Now these were believers in Jesus. These were God's people, excuse me. But at this time they're still Jews. Jews who've trusted in Jesus. But then as the book of Acts begins to unfold, Acts chapter 8, we see people who are partly Jewish by ancestry and partly not. And they put their faith in Jesus, are filled with the Holy Spirit, and are incorporated into God's people. And then Acts chapter 10, we see a guy who is 0% Jew. He's a Roman uh, centurion. He's, He's a Roman sergeant. And his whole family comes to faith in Jesus, are indwelt, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and enrolled into God's community of people. And as the book of Acts, excuse me, continues on, we see that God is selecting a people for Himself that don't have a shared ethnic background, that don't always have a shared cultural heritage, but have a shared faith and the risen Lord, the King of all kings, that have a shared experience of a life changed by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ. And this is God's community. 
This is God's people that He has chosen. Or Ephesians 2 says to people who are not Jewish by heritage, remember Acts, or Ephesians 2.11. Next slide. Ephesians 2.11. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles, non-Jews, in the flesh, by your ancestry, called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. So you don't obey the law, uh, the, the Jewish laws, which is made by flesh, uh, in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at one time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. You were outside of God's community. You were outside of the people of God. You had no hope. Remember this. But now in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, For He Himself is our peace, who has made us both one, Jew and Gentile, and has broken down in His flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Here's a little side note. In Jerusalem, in the temple, where God the Holy Spirit dwelt in power among the Jewish people, there was a place called the Court of the Gentiles. And if you were not a Jew, you could come and you could pray to the one true God in that area but you could not go any further. And there was a wall. And on that wall, there was a plaque of sorts, an inscription. And it it was a message, a warning to the Gentiles. And it basically said, if you pass here, your death is surely pending. And you have no one to blame but yourself. And so it was just a further reminder that if you happen to know the one true God, because you're not a Jew, you're still separated. You're still separated from God's true community. But Christ has broken down that wall. God is no longer dwells in buildings made by human hands. He dwells among His people. Verse 15, by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that He might create in Himself one new man in the place of the two, so making peace that He might reconcile us both to God. Jews need to be saved and non-Jews need to be saved through faith in Christ. Both the God and one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility, killing the racism and the self-righteousness. And He came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through Him we both have access in one Spirit to the Father. Jesus, the Father, and the Spirit. That community of the Godhead. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And Him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. So there's no longer Jews and Gentiles a distinction before God. There's no longer Israel, God's people, God's community, and the nations who God did not choose and who God did not go after and who God did not call His own. There's no longer this distinction. God has had a plan for a community of people unified unto Himself 
from the beginning of time, from before the dawn of time, and that plan is realized in Christ, not in an ethnic group, not in a geopolitical nation, but in the church. God's community is the church, both capital church, all true believers of all times, scattered all over the face of the earth and in heaven above, and the lowercase church, the local church, the visible body of Christ governed by His under-shepherds, observing His ordinances, carrying out His mission of being disciples and making disciples all over the face of the earth. A guy named John Stott says, We are not only Christian people, we are also church people. We are not only committed to Christ, we are also committed to the body of Christ. At least I hope so. I trust that none of my readers is that grotesque anomaly, an unchurched Christian. The New Testament knows nothing of such a person. For the church lies at the very center of the eternal purpose of God. It is not a divine afterthought. It is not an accident of history. On the contrary, the church is God's new community. For His purpose, conceived in a past eternity, being worked out in history, and to be perfected in a future eternity. It is not just to save isolated individuals and so perpetuate our loneliness. We're just a bunch of Christians who have faith in Jesus but are still lonely. No, but rather to build His church. That is, to call out of the world, out of the nations, a people for His own glory. So then, the reason we are committed to the church is that God is so committed. God is so committed to the church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it because God has always had a plan to have a community, a people for Himself. And that plan is realized in Christ. The Bible also teaches us that God's community, number three, God's community or God's people, His community of people, belong not just to Him, but to one another. God's community of people belong not just to Him, but to one another. 1 Corinthians 10. The Apostle Paul is talking about food sacrificed to idols, objects of wood or stone that are, that are worshipped. And he says in verse 16, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. So he talks about the Lord's Supper and he says that there's one loaf of bread and we all partake of it. There's one body of Christ and all God's people are part of it. The Lord's Supper is identifying not only with the body and blood of Jesus that was broken and shed for us, but it is also identifying with the uh, spiritual body of Christ, with the mystical body of Christ, God's children who are united through faith in Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 11, Paul says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. 
I hate to meddle, but I will for just a minute. We offer both grape juice and wine. We respect convictions, and we seek to be biblical. And if wine was not involved in the Lord's Supper, then how in the world do people get drunk on grape juice? Verse 22. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then. And so, eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Skipping down to verse 33. So then, my brothers, when you come, eat together. Together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. Paul is comparing the arrogance of the Corinthians. You guys come in, you spitefully uh, eat and drink in front of those of you who have something, who are well-to-do or better off, in front of those who are less fortunate or who have less. You're arrogant. You don't wait for some people. You eat to the neglect of some people. You drink to drunkenness to the point of a sin. And you do it realizing that some people don't even get to enjoy the fruits at all. You're arrogant. But Christ surely is not arrogant. Christ is gentle. Christ is humble. Christ is sacrificial. His body and blood should remind you of sacrifice and humility, not arrogance and haughtiness. And because some of you are not realizing the body of Christ, the people of God, who are mystically joined together as the body of Christ, you are eating in an unworthy manner. You are not acknowledging those around you for whom Christ died. And God is disciplining you. For this reason, some of you are drunk or uh, have died. Some of you have become sick, and some of you have even died. Why? Because you're not treating other Christians with love and compassion and dignity and respect. You see, Jesus' people, God's community, belongs not just to Him, but they belong to one another. And they should care for one another. We see this in Romans 12, talking about spiritual gifts. Verse 5, So we, though we are many, are one body in Christ and individually members, not just of the body, but of one another. Members of one another. Members of one another having gifts, verse 6, that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. 1 Corinthians 12, 7 says, the benefit of all spiritual gifts is the, uh, of the manifestation of the Spirit is the mutual benefit of others for the common good. Since we are members of one another in Christ, our goal should be our common good to bless and minister to one another. Because members belong to one another, they function primarily to serve and benefit one another. The church is not about you. The community group is not primarily about you. 
It's about what you can do to another brother or to another sister to build them up for the glory of God, to care for one another. Two guys named Steve to me and Tim Chester in a book called Total Church, they, they say this, by becoming a Christian, I belong to God and I belong to my brothers and sisters. It is not that I belong to God and then make a decision to join a local church. My being in Christ means being in Christ with those who are in Christ. This is my identity. This is our identity. To fail to live out our corporate identity in Christ is analogous to the act of adultery. We can be Christian and do it, but it is not what Christians should do. The loyalties of the new community supersede even the loyalties of biology. Jesus said, if a man does not hate his own father or mother or son or daughter for my sake, he cannot be his disciple. doesn't mean you should hate your mom and dad, but it means that if they supersede your loyalty to Christ and your loyalty to the body of Christ, are you really a follower of Jesus? If the church is the body of Christ, then we should not live as disembodied Christians. The fourth thing that the Bible teaches about community that's central to the gospel and community is gospel-centered community isn't just good for Christians, but it's good for the world. The Apostle Paul in Philippians 2 is talking to Christians. And he says to Christians, in verse 3, do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. So don't do things and make them just about yourself. Do them for the benefit of others. Then Galatians 6 says that not only is it good for us to live in community and we're helping one another, but it says, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, especially to those who are of the household of faith. So we're serving one another, living in gospel-centered community, living our lives as forgiven, accepted sinners and dwelt by the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit and serving one another and putting others before ourselves and putting their good before our own good. That isn't just for us or good for us, but it's good for the world. Have that same attitude towards everyone. Christian or non, but especially to those who are Christian. And here's how. Here's how Christians got a hold of that. In a letter to a bunch of Christians throughout the Roman Empire, written in the 3rd century in 281, uh, a guy named um, Dionysus, he was a bishop uh, over several churches, He said this, telling about Christians in one particular region. Most of our brothers, and this is talking about a plague that went through that region as well. Most of our brother Christians showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves and thinking only of of one another. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick. So they took Galatians 
uh, Philippians 2, caring for one another, and they took Galatians 6, caring for one another, and to everyone in the midst of this plague. They took it to heart. They took community to heart, and it overflowed beyond the banks of their own community. Heedless of danger, they took charge of the sick, attending to their every need, and ministering to them in Christ. And with them departed this life serenely happy. For they were infected by others with the disease, with this plague, drawing on themselves the sickness of their neighbors and cheerfully accepting their pains. Many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their death to themselves and died in their stead. The best of our brothers lost their lives in this manner. A number of presbyters, deacons, and laymen winning high commendation so that death in this form, the result of great piety and strong faith, seems in every way the equal of martyrdom. The heathen behaved in the very opposite way. At the first onset of the disease, they pushed the sufferers away and fled from their dearest, throwing them into the roads before they were dead, and treated unburied corpses as dirt, hoping thereby to avert the spread and contagion of the fatal disease. But do what they might, they found it difficult to escape. Dionysus is saying God's community of people who are sharing their lives together in the midst of this horrible plague shared their lives with others, giving their health in exchange for others' death. And doesn't that sound like Jesus laying down our lives for others? Jesus took our sin, we get His righteousness. He bore God's wrath, we get eternal life as a reward. And He said the people who these sick people belong to, their family members, their neighbors, they stayed away from those with the plague like the plague. But the Christian community, they continued to demonstrate a oneness and a love and a self-giving, just like the one true God who experiences perfect community and has a self-giving love. But the heathen... Those who were not Christian, they didn't do this. And, and about 100, uh, maybe 120 years later, a Roman emperor named um, Julian, who hated Christians, he absolutely hated them. He said this to one of the pagan priests. He said, the impious Galileans, talking about Christians, support not only their poor, but ours as well. Everyone can see that our people lack aid from us. What he was telling this pagan priest was, the Christians are trying to gain favor with the people. And they know that we don't take care of our own people. And so they are subversively trying to care for and love those who are not Christians. Just so that they can gain a following. And we need to start doing more of this. Not because we should love our own people but because we hate the Christians. And if we take charity away from the Christians, then the Christians won't have popularity with the people. He hated the fact that Christians were gaining uh, favor with the people who were not Christians. And why was it? Because their community for one another, their self-giving love toward one another, overflowed the banks of the church and poured out into the world. 
and people who were not Christians, their lives were being affected by it. And those, some of those who were not Christians hated it. It was undeniable. And so, true community, self-giving love, sharing our lives together because of Christ and in Christ's name is not only good for the people of God, it's good for the world. When God's people become like Christ and they experience a oneness in a community like the God they worship, one God, one God, excuse me, and three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, not three gods, one God and three persons, when they experience that, then the world benefits as a result. We fall far short of God's plan for the church and God's plan to save us and make us like Jesus when we live the Christian life as a baptized version of our rugged American individualism. When everything in our Christian life is equal with pursuing the American dream and looking out for me and mine and taking care of myself and making sure first and foremost that my needs are met and that it's on to bigger and better things for me, we fall miserably short of God's good design for our lives as His children. The Christian life was meant to be lived together, and it's dangerous for us when we don't avail ourselves of the rest of the body, not just in a building once a week either, or not just a once a week in a building and once a week in someone's home, but talking about pursuing true community, sharing our lives, our possessions, our time together because Christ is in us and we are in Him and He is in them and we are to be one as He is one and we are to be one with the Father because He is one with the Father. We cannot be living out the Gospel, living under the realization, the daily awareness that we are accepted, forgiven sinners indwelled by the Holy Spirit and not love the body and bride of Christ. And so, tonight, as we get ready to move into a time of reflection and do business with God each privately before we take the Lord's Supper together, my question is, how are you doing at living in community with other Christians. It is not a fad. It is not a buzzword. Even if it's not in your translation of the Bible, it's God's heart for His people. And how well are you doing at it? Do you look more like a Christian, one of the people of God, or look more like an American in your very individualized and compartmentalized life attending to your needs? We need each other. Others need you, and you need them. And Jesus wants us to love one another. And that's the heart of community. So, as Jason plays, let's take a couple moments before Matt comes up to uh, lead us in responding to God through the Lord's Supper tonight. Let's take a couple moments, each one, just individually, to examine our lives. How, How am I really doing? living in community with other believers. Is that really at the heart of the gospel? God, give me the grace to lay down my life towards others. Just take a couple moments and talk to God.